Amen. You can build your life on Jesus. We've been singing about him all morning, and so uh, we're so thankful for Sean. Thank you, Pastor Sean and the team. And uh, you can build your life on Jesus. Amen. And listen, we're going to be in, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be there in just a few moments. We're going to be back in Matthew in a couple of weeks. If you're new to the church, I kind of like my teaching approach is I like to take a book of the Bible and just go through it real slow and methodically. But every once in a while, we take a couple of breaks. Last week, we took a break with evangelist Alan Griffin, who just brought an amazing word. Come on, if you missed it, you can go to our website and check it out. Uh, Next week, just want to invite you back, Pastor Frank Potter, one of my pastors, he's going to be here bringing the word, and so sandwiched in the middle, you are stuck with me, but we are going to take a break from Matthew. I want to talk about the Bible, and you're like, well, I thought we always did that. Yes, we do. Uh, In fact, you'll see every time we come up onto the stage, we hold the Bible in our hands. There's a reason for that. It's because we hold high value in the word of God. And, you know, um, it's okay if you use your phone or your tablet or whatever uh, for, you know, for your Bible. But there's just something about the real hard copy of the word of God. And so we do that intentionally because we hold the word of God in high regard here at our church. And so uh, in a world where truth seems to be shifting based on culture, based on man's newfound wisdom and newfound knowledge, we come back to the scripture. We think it is the word of God. We believe that it is uh, completely true, completely accurate, completely infallible. But how do you know that the Bible is true, you might ask? And so we want to help answer some of those questions today and give you, uh, give you some equipment. And we want to equip you with some, some assurance that the Bible is true. Now, it's kind of going to be like a, an apologetics type of message. Now, I'm not a great apologetic or debater, but uh, I did some research for this message. And I think you're going to get something out of it. But there is a popular trend today to deconstruct Scripture. Uh, in our culture, in churches, and even in some denominations. And it's a very dangerous trend where it seems that truth can somehow be malleable or flexible. Uh, We firmly believe that uh, God's word is the absolute truth. In In a world where truth seems to be shifting, there's not my version of truth. What's true for me might not be true for you. We don't see it like that. There's not like the the Republican set of truths and the Democrat set of truths. I mean, there is the absolute truth, and it is the word of God. It is scripture. We We hold it in high regard around here, and I would encourage you to dig into it. It provides us strength. It provides us the standard in which we are to live by. And so I want to help you have assurance that it is true. And so for those of you that already believe that, I've already heard some good amens. I appreciate that. Thank you. This is only going to solidify your belief that it is God's word. It is God's truth. For those of you that are on the fence, I'm praying that the scriptures that we read today as we go into this study, and more importantly, that the Holy Spirit will speak to you, and you will take that step of faith and say, you know what? I'm all in. I'm convinced that the Bible is more than just some cute sayings, but it is the perfect, infallible word of God. So I want to help you today with the help of the Holy Spirit. Is that all right today? 
So uh, if you have your notes, make sure to take some notes. If not, we've got some small blue journal-type notebooks out in the Welcome Center that you helped pay for. So I would encourage you to grab one of those and take some good notes today. I'm going to give you four reasons why we can trust that the Bible is true. Four reasons. So hopefully you're taking some good notes. I'm going to go fast, especially when we get to number four. If I go too fast, just email me and I will... I will send you all of these scriptures, all of these points. Number one, we can trust that the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. (laughs) Now, I know this sounds kind of weak, uh, maybe a weak argument or kind of redundant and probably only solidifies your position if you already believe that the Bible is God's standard, if you already believe that it is the truth. But I mean, every book, of course, is going to claim that it's true. Right, That's why the author wrote the book. He believes or she believes that it is true. But over and over, we find in God's word that the Bible confirms the Bible. There is such unity and harmony, and it's amazing how Scripture validates other Scripture. That, by the way, is why we don't just take one little snippet and build a theology on it. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. And it's amazing the unity and harmony that we find within the Scripture. Jesus himself, when he came to this earth 2,000 years ago, he often would quote from the law, the Scripture, the uh, Old Testament. And by doing so, when he quoted that, he confirmed that it was the Word of God. In fact, some scholars tell us that Jesus quoted from about three-fourths of the Old Testament. One of the most famous instances that we see when he's confirming the validity of Scripture is when the devil meets him out in the desert and tries to tempt him. And how does he, uh, what weapon does he use to defeat the devil, to say, get out of here, devil? The Scripture. Three times he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And he would point back to the Word of God. Now, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, you don't have to turn there. We're going to be in 2 Peter here in just a minute. But in Matthew 22, Jesus is talking to some of the Sadducees. Sadducees uh, were a sect of the Jews that did not believe in the resurrection, that there was no life after death. death. That's why they were sad, you see. That was a second service joke. First service did not get that one. Uh, But Jesus is talking to them and saying, hey, man, there is life after death. You need to believe in the resurrection. And in verse 29 of chapter 22, he says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures, what he told them. And then he goes on to say in verse 31 and 32, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, again, talking to the Sadducees, have you not read what God said to you? And then he quotes from Deuteronomy, I am, the, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now, what I wanted to do with this scripture, I wanted to show you that Jesus himself is telling us that the scripture, the Bible, the law, the Old Testament is not just man's writings. He says what God said. Jesus didn't, didn't say, hey, have you not read what Moses said? Jesus didn't say, have you not read the Old Testament scriptures? Have you not read Deuteronomy? Jesus, I believe, went out of his way to say and ask the question, do you not believe what God said? So what he is, what he is saying here is that God authored the scripture. God is the author of your Bible. 
Here's something from the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, how many scriptures? All. All scripture is breathed out by God. Other translations say inspired by God. Not just a little bit, not just here and there. All scripture is inspired, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So Paul is writing to Timothy here in this scripture and he's telling him that scripture is breathed out from the very mouth of God. It is not man's musings, it is not clever stories and ideas, but it is the very word of God. This is what, here's, here's another thing that's cool about the Bible. The Bible is a collection of 66 books written by 40 authors, written in three different continents, in three different languages over the span of 1,500 years. Yet in it, we find such incredible unity and harmony that the only explanation for the amount of unity and harmony and consistency that we see is it had to have been divinely inspired. I mean, what other book or compilation of books can claim such unity? You know, I would bet that if we took random 40 people from our room here today and said, why don't you write uh, the story of God's redemption? Why don't you write uh, Jesus's salvation story? If we were to have 40 different compilations of that, it wouldn't even near, come near close to the unity that we find in the word of God. It is remarkable, the unity that we find in God's word. The Bible is God's holy word breathed out by God himself. Number two, we can trust the Bible because of eyewitness accounts. We have first-hand eyewitness account. In fact, Scripture tells us there were more than 500. I'll give you that Scripture here in just a moment. More than 500 people witnessed the resurrected Jesus. Not just pre-crucified Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus. And I told you to turn in 2 Peter. We're going to pick it up. Chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, and he's quoting God here, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So Peter is recalling the encounter that he had with James and John and Jesus when Moses and Elijah descended in this cloud. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. It was this incredible moment where Jesus was able to hang out for just a few, uh, for just a little bit with Moses and Elijah. And Peter is saying, hey guys, we were there. We heard the very voice of the Father God. We are eyewitnesses. We saw him with our own eyes. We heard him with our own ears. We walked with him. We talked with him. We lived through it. We are eyewitnesses. 
Now, how many of you know that if you uh, watch court shows or maybe you're a lawyer or, you know, you've been to court, there's nothing more powerful than an eyewitness testimony. I mean, if you can get an eyewitness to the crime, your case is pretty much a slam dunk, right? It's one thing to say, well, I think there's some hearsay, second or third hand information. I think we can kind of read into some things here, maybe assign some motive, that's, you know, that might get you somewhere, but there's nothing as powerful as a firsthand eyewitness account. It will sink your case if you have an eyewitness account. Peter was there. He was an eyewitness. He had a front row to the life and teachings of Jesus and his miracles, his death, his resurrection. Paul wrote about these eyewitnesses as well. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Uh, Cephas, by the way, is Peter. And then to the 12th. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul is kind of taking the same approach as Peter here. Hey, these are not made up fairy tale stories. We have eyewitness accounts who saw Jesus and then who documented their encounters with the resurrected Jesus. We have hundreds of eyewitness accounts. Here's what's cool. Did you know that, that you actually don't even have to have that much faith to believe that Jesus died and rose again? Now, to be clear, you do have to have faith uh, that he is the Messiah. You do have to follow him. Every day he said, take up your cross and follow me. But it actually doesn't take a whole lot of faith to believe that Jesus lived, died, and lived again because we have firsthand documented evidence of his resurrection. If you have time, maybe you can dig deeper into it. Uh, Lee Strobel has a really cool book called The Case for Christ. You might wanna investigate that. But we have firsthand eyewitness account that has been documented. Now, contrast that. You wanna take a guess at how many eyewitness documented accounts we have of people who refute that Jesus rose from the dead who say that, you know what, that was all a farce, it's a sham, it was a scam created by Jesus' followers because they were trying to drum up this new religion, so they came up with this fake news story. Anybody wanna take a guess on how many documents we have that is refuting that Jesus rose from the dead? Zero. To date, there are zero documents of people claiming that this Jesus, the way, this Christianity, the resurrection is just a bunch of fairy tales. But yet we have overwhelming amount of evidence and eyewitness accounts of those that did witness the resurrected Jesus. And here's the thing. Those that did document it, they literally put their lives on the line for it. I mean, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the apostles, they literally gave their life for Jesus. I mean, why would you do that if it was just some sort of made-up story? You know, in the first uh, couple of centuries, Christians were martyred. They were beheaded. Some were literally 
cut in two. Uh, They were crucified, eaten by lions. All they would have had to do is say, you know what, I just made it up. It's not true. I was just trying to make up some stories and create this new religion. It's not really true. Please don't kill me. But they were so passionate for Jesus that they were willing to risk it all. They literally gave their life for the sake of Jesus. This is real stuff. None of them were willing to deny that Jesus was the resurrected Savior. So we can have confidence the Bible is true because we have eyewitness, documented accounts of the events that happened in the Bible. Here's number three. We also can trust that the Bible is true because we have archaeology and history. This kind of goes along with what I mentioned in number two with eyewitness accounts. But is there actual proof of these ancient writings? Or did King James just kind of come up with this a few hundred years ago? Well, the documents that make up the Bible have been found not by Christians who are trying to back up their claims for Christ, but by secular archaeologists. Actual copies of the Old Testament book of Isaiah was found from a boy who found the Dead Sea Scrolls. The New Testament manuscripts have more historical evidence of existence than any other ancient writings or documents. Now, some of you have probably heard of Socrates, this ancient writer, uh, other writers as well that have multiple copies of some of their ancient documents and their ancient writings. We can find anywhere from 8 to 12 of some of Socrates' ancient writings. The Iliad and Odyssey, written by the Greek author uh, Homer, was written around 800 B.C., we have reportedly found anywhere from 100 up to 500 copies of some of those manuscripts. Now, remember back then there was no copiers, there was no printing presses, so you literally had to handwrite them, you had to transcribe them. But they have found anywhere from 100 to 500 of Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. By comparison, archaeologists have found anywhere from six thousand to 20,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. No other ancient document even comes close. In fact, the next closest is Homer's Odyssey that we just mentioned. It has a couple of hundred. We're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of copies that have been discovered by archaeologists of the New Testament ancient writings. We can be confident the Bible is true thanks to archaeology and to history. Now, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's pick it up at verse 20 now. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It wasn't just made up by prophets. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God. They spoke from God as they, will, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what this scripture does, it gives us the fourth reason why we can trust the Bible is true, and that is fulfilled prophecy. Because of fulfilled prophecy. Now, to me, this is the, the most compelling one, the greatest proof that the Bible is the word of God. I mean, I believe in all the other stuff that we talked about 
in the eyewitness accounts and the archaeology. Uh, the Bible confirms the Bible. We see miracles and signs and wonders and all of that other stuff. I believe that. But prophecy fulfilled has been logged historically. It has been documented historically. A prophet prophesied this, and we see it fulfilled through Jesus in the New Testament. The Bible continually and consistently predicts future events with incredible accuracy. Some of the prophecies were hundreds, even thousands of years before it actually came true. By the way, there's more to come true as well. Thank you, Revelation, as well. So no person or document even comes close to accurately predicting the future like the Bible does. And we're not talking uh, general prophecies like, hey, one day in a little bit of time, there's gonna be this really nice man. He's probably gonna have long, dark hair, and uh, he's going to have some great teachings. He's going to be pretty likable by, uh, non, by non-religious people. The religious people aren't going to like him. Um, you, you know, he's going to do some miracles. And he's going to claim to be the Messiah. Kind of a general prophecy. We're not talking general pro- prophecies. We're talking very detailed, very specific prophecies that we find from the prophets of the Old Testament. In fact, a, a professor named Peter Stoner, we mentioned this back in February, uh, calculated the mathematical probability of a singular person in the first century fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. And so he, I don't know how he did it, but he came up with this, uh, this number. This, this was his conclusion that the chance of one man fulfilling just eight of these Old Testament messianic prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros there. I'm not even sure what number that is. That's a lot, a lot of zeros. Now, by comparison, the odds of winning the Mega Millions lottery, which if you do, make sure you write your tithe check to Calvary. (laughs) But the odds of winning that is one in 300 million. That's a three with eight zeros. This is 17 zeros. And what's more, we're just talking about eight of the Messianic prophecies. Most Bible scholars estimate there are about 200 of these prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, another calculation uh, was, uh, was come up with the odds that 48 of the 200 prophecies being fulfilled by one man named Jesus would be one in 10 to the 157th power. That's one with 157 zeros. I don't think we have room enough on this screen for that many zeros. Fulfilled prophecy gives us confidence that the Bible is true. And so with our time remaining here today, I wanna give you about eight or nine of these prophecies. Again, if I go too quickly, I'll be happy to email you the notes. But number one, you can write these down. Let's talk about Bethlehem. Of all the places that the Messiah could be born, he was born in a little country town just outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. But did you know that hundreds of years before that, there was a prophet named Micah who prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Here's what he writes, Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. 700 years. That's a long time. Imagine, uh, what, what year are we at? 2021. Imagine predicting that in 2721, that a Messiah, a king, would be born in a small country town in Frederick County, maybe like Burkittsville or something like that. Can you imagine the accuracy? And check this out. For Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, there would have had to be a series of events that got him to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary didn't live in Bethlehem, did they? They lived in Nazareth. So Herod had to declare a census. Hey, let's take a census. Let's take account of all the people of the land. So all of you people need to go back to your town of origin. So think of the odds that Mary and Joseph from Nazareth had to go to Bethlehem where Joseph's origins were from. Oh, and by the way, Mary would have to be pregnant at just the right time and just the right time in her pregnancy that she was about to give birth and couldn't get back to Nazareth to give birth, so she had to give birth in Bethlehem. That's incredible detail right there. That can only be explained by the divine. Number two, Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah's name. He would call his name Emmanuel. Chapter seven of, of, uh, of Isaiah, verse 14, says, the virgin will conceive a birth and, uh, to a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Well, that was fulfilled in Matthew chapter one, verse 23, when the angel appeared to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, and said, you're gonna call him Emmanuel. Number three. Hosea predicted that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. All the way back in Hosea, uh, we find this in chapter 11, verse 1 of, of Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, I love the double meaning here because he's referring to the nation of Israel, his child, but also Jesus, his son. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. This was fulfilled in Matthew chapter two, verse 14 and 15. You can look it up later if you'd like. Jesus was called out of Egypt. Well, I thought he was born in Bethlehem and was from Nazareth. Yes. Again, there had to be some supernatural intervention for this prophecy to take place. Remember, the angel of the Lord came to Joseph at night and said, you need to get Mary and Jesus out of Dodge real quick because Herod is trying to murder all of the baby boys. You need to hightail it down to Egypt until I tell you it's okay to come back. And of course, he did. You know, the angel came back, back to Joseph and said, hey, you're good to bring him from Egypt back to Bethlehem or back to Nazareth. Thus fulfilling the prophecy from Hosea, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Check the box of Bethlehem, check the box of Nazareth. Now he's checked the box of Egypt. It's incredible that Jesus could fulfill so many prophecies. Number four, 
Here's another one that I find very interesting. Matthew chapter 27, you don't have to turn there, records where Judas, one of the 12 disciples, betrayed Jesus. Maybe you are familiar with this story, but Judas being one of Jesus' followers uh, was kind of working behind the scenes with some of the religious leaders, and he was going to betray Jesus for the amount of 30 pieces of silver. They were gonna give him 30 pieces of silver in exchange to turn Jesus in. And so he followed through. He got his 30 pieces of silver and he delivered the goods. He brought Jesus to the religious leaders who arrested him or who arrested Jesus. But Judas had remorse. He had second thoughts. He's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just betrayed Jesus. I just betrayed the Messiah. And so he goes back to the temple with the 30 pieces of silver. Scripture tells us that he flings the money back at the religious leaders. And they're like, man, I'm sorry. We already had a deal. This is blood money. We're not gonna take this money. Well, you know what we can do? Why don't we just take, if if Judas isn't gonna take it, let's take the money and we'll buy a potter's field and we'll use it as a burial ground for foreigners. It's an incredible story. You can read about it. Now, there's no way that that could have been predicted in Scripture, right? This is incredible. Check this out. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You can't make this stuff up, folks. That happened. That was predicted centuries earlier. Number five, Jesus remains quiet. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 The prophet Isaiah prophesied that the Savior would remain quiet as he stood before his accusers. In Mark chapter 15, in the gospel account, we see that this prophecy is fulfilled. It reads this. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy from Isaiah. Speaking of Isaiah, he also prophesied that the Messiah would be beaten and mocked. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse six, it reads this. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Was Jesus mocked? Was his beard plucked? Was he beaten? Was he spat upon? He was. He fulfilled that prophecy. Number seven, Psalm 22. David prophesied that the Messiah would be crucified. 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified on the cross, David prophesied that it would happen. But here's where it kind of gets out there crazy. And when David wrote that in Psalm 22, by the way, Psalm 22 is crucifixion cross language. It's amazing, uh, the details that it gives. But here's the deal. When when it was written a 1,000 years before the crucifixion, crucifixion wasn't even a thing. Crucifixion had not been invented yet when David wrote that the Messiah would be crucified. 
That wasn't for another 600 years before crucifixion was even invented. So nations literally had to come up with new forms of capital punishment for this prophecy to be fulfilled. This is supernatural stuff. By the way, also in Psalm 22, uh, David writes about how they will gamble for Jesus' clothes. That wasn't supposed to happen, by the way. That was, not, that was not crucifixion protocol from the soldiers, but they gambled for his garments. They literally broke protocols of crucifixion. Uh, normally, they would just rip the clothes off of the, off of the criminal on the cross. By the way, Psalm 22, the very beginning of the psalm, begins with what Jesus quoted when he was on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's amazing, the detail that we find. Number eight, both Exodus and Psalms tells us that not one bone would be broken from the Messiah. Not one bone would be broken. So again, we're talking about the details of the crucifixion. It was protocol for the soldiers as these criminals were hanging on the cross to expedite death. They would break the legs of the criminal on the cross, which would prevent them from the ability to push themselves back up with their feet to get another breath. So it would cause them, as their legs are broken, they could no longer get themselves up. They couldn't take any more breath, so they would literally suffocate to death. They broke the other two criminals' legs. They did not break Jesus' legs. When they got to Jesus, they found, man, he's already dead. We don't need to break his bones, thus fulfilling prophecy. Number nine, Isaiah chapter 53, verse nine, tells us that Jesus would be buried with the rich. Isaiah 53 Verse nine says this, he had no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was, buried, he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Anybody know where Jesus was buried? Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy, secret follower of Jesus Christ, fulfilling the prophecy. We could go on and on. Remember I said there's about 200 of them. We got to nine of them, okay? Well, we'll save the other 199, 190 for another time perhaps. But the incredible accuracy that these prophecies were fulfilled by one man is compelling evidence that the Bible is true. The Bible is accurate. You can trust it. It contains the very words of God. It is true. It is truth. And it is, it is eternal. And just like God, it never changes. The same yesterday, today, forever. It doesn't change because the media tells us we need to change. It doesn't change because cable news or culture or the Democrats or the Republicans have changed what truth is. It is the unchanging, infallible truth of God's word. And because it is true, you can build your life upon it. We're just saying about it. All other ground is sinking sand. You can build your life upon the word of God. It will lead you. It will guide you. It will be your roadmap. It will be your owner's manual, if you will. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Now, I, I would think that most of us in this room would agree that we are living in a dark world. This is a dark place. In fact, if you think that we are headed toward this perfect utopia, this is not what utopia looks like. It's the opposite. We are headed downhill real quick. But if you're driving in the nighttime, if you're driving in a dark world, traveling in the darkness, you need to turn your headlamps on on your Chevy. You need to turn the headlights on so you can see as far as you can see. It's illuminated. You can see way out there. It helps you see as far as you can go. Now, in the Bible days, they didn't have cars and trucks. So when you traveled at night by foot, they would carry a lantern, a lamp. You know, it couldn't illuminate as far as you needed to go, but it could illuminate the next step. It was really dark. We live in a really dark world. We need the word of God to light our path. And it might not light, we might not be able to see what's coming 10 miles from here, 20 miles from here, but you know what? It can illuminate our next step. And as we keep the Bible in front of us, it'll illuminate our next step. Here's the thing. I don't just read the Bible once and I'm good for 20 years. It, does, it doesn't work like the headlamps that can see way far out there. I read my Bible, I'm good till about lunchtime, okay? Maybe you're with me on that. And then I need to go, get back with the Lord, get back in God's word. But in this dark, dark world, God has provided his word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. You can trust it. You can build your life upon it. It's true, it's infallible, and it's eternal. One last scripture, and we're done. Isaiah 40, verse eight. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand. How long? Everybody say it. Forever. The word of our God will stand forever. God's word is alive. It is powerful. It is active. It illuminates our light. It illuminates our way. You can be confident that God's word is not just some nice stories or inspirational thoughts. It's the very words of God, and it will stand the test of time. It will last forever. Amen, everybody? Come on, let's give God praise today for his word. We thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Your word lasts forever. Amen. Yeah, you can stand. That's great. Look at you standing for God's word. Hey, as you're standing, I'm just gonna invite you to, to, to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. We wanna speak to those in this room that have not yet crossed the line of salvation. We've just talked about how scripture, you can trust it. It is God's word. It is a roadmap. It is God's beautiful story of redemption. And you know who the star is? Jesus. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Here's where I have to be careful. I don't want to just know the Bible. I want to have a relationship with the Jesus, with the God of the Bible. Information is good. A theology degrees, that's great. Bible college degrees, all that's great. But do you know the God 
of the Bible? Do you have a personal relationship? Are you walking with Jesus, the one who the Bible is all about? So right now, if you're ready to cross the line of faith, if you are ready to say yes to Jesus, just going to encourage you to invite him into your heart, invite him into your life right now. All you have to do is believe that he is the way to salvation. He lived a sinless life, died on the cross, then rose again. He paid the ultimate price for our sin. In fact, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't come to abolish scripture. He came to fulfill scripture by giving his life, the perfect spotless lamb. And he wants to have a relationship with you. So if that's you and you're ready to say Jesus, say yes to Jesus. No one's looking around. Would you just hold your hand up? Hold it there for just a moment. We want to help you. Yes, thank you. Many, many hands. Praise God. You want to know the God of the Bible. You want to know this Jesus that we've talked about. Now, here's all you have to do. In your heart, maybe just under your breath, say something like this. Say, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. I've been living life selfishly, living life on my own. And I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. I acknowledge that you are the way to heaven. You are the way to everlasting life. And I invite you to be the Lord of my life. I repent of my sin. And then today I choose to follow you for the rest of my life. If that's you, if you said that in your heart or under your breath, let someone know in just a moment. The, in fact, you can come right now, prayer team members. You can let some of the prayer team members know that. They want to pray with you. They want to give you a Bible. They want to help you on your spiritual journey. Or you can fill out a connection card. If you're watching us online, you can go to calvarymd.com. There's a spot there that you can let us know that you are making a decision to follow Jesus. For the rest of you that are here in this place, the Jesus that we have talked about, we cannot keep to ourselves. A few weeks ago, we talked about being salt and light to our world. We have a world that is starving for real truth. It is starving for absolute truth. Every time you turn on the TV, you scroll the internet, you're seeing shifting truth. What was true yesterday isn't true today. What's true today isn't gonna be true tomorrow. It, the world needs to know the truth, the absolute truth. And guess what? You as believers have the truth inside of you. But you cannot keep it to yourself. So right now, as you go through your week as well, ask the Holy Spirit, how would you help me? How would you have me share my faith with other people? We're not saying you have to hit them over the head with your giant print Bible, okay? Just build a, build a relationship with them, build a rapport with them. Tell them about Jesus who came and transformed your life. It's more than information, right? It's transformation. But sometimes the information helps us get to the transformation, doesn't it? And hopefully you've been equipped today to talk to your friends about this Jesus. We have the answer. We have the cure. Why would we keep it to ourselves? So this week, I commission you, just like Jesus did, to go into your world, go make a difference, go make a positive impact on the people that God puts in your path. Each and every one of you have a sphere of influence that God has placed you in. Use it well to tell others about Jesus. 
Can you do that this week, church? Ooh, I got two on the stage. <laughs> Can the rest of you tell the world, use your Facebook posts. Tell Jesus about how great he is. Use your influence at school, at work, at your neighborhood grill out that you serve a great and awesome God. Amen, everybody. Come on, let's declare this now. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit.